0: The talkers around the table today discuss the norms and conventions. We'll think about the world of informal norms and conventions in a wide range of realms. Why and how do they come to be? What sustains them? What are the different mechanisms of enforcement? Why do we sometimes step in restaurants that we would never revisit? What kinds of changes or improvisations are permitted in creative domains, such as classical music? Our norms are norms a constraint in this context? What is a compliant personal style? Is it important for societies to informally punish opportunistic behavior? What might be the very long-term implication of the spread of laws, regulations and markets? And would norms be subsumed by laws? We are pleased and privileged to have two SYN Talkers with us here today. Dr. Anish Pradhan is a Hindustani classical musician trained in Tabla. He is also a researcher and is based in Mumbai. And Professor Rajiv Sethi is an economist working on, among other things, how stereotypes affect interactions between strangers, especially in relation to the criminal justice system. Is from Barnett College in Columbia University, New York. So, Rajiv, maybe we set the ball rolling with you. Sure. Um, what are norms? I mean, why do they exist? How do they come to be? And um, what do they precede and what do they succeed? What are they? How do we think of them? In, in human lives and social lives and economic
1: lives well the way I would think of norms um, as opposed to conventions are mm-hmm. uh, patterns of behavior um, that have the property that uh, when they are violated they lead to uh, some sort of an emotional reaction um, so they're enforced both through you know internal, uh, psychological mechanisms where people feel bad. So you mean intrinsic emotional reaction? Intrinsic emotional reactions as well as external enforcement. So right. if people violate norms, um, they can be punished uh, or, or they can you know, cause uh, distress uh, uh, among observers. And that's different from conventions. Uh, so I would distinguish between norms and conventions based on the reaction that people have to their violation, both internally and externally.
0: So a violation of a convention would not necessarily be accompanied by emotional stress or so something to that effect.
1: Something to that effect. So, for example, if you take you know driving on the left or the right-hand side of the street as that's a convention. That's purely a convention. That's purely a convention. If you have somebody in continental Europe, for example, who crosses the English Channel and goes to the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. they're quite comfortable changing the, direct, you know, the side of the street on which they drive. Right. They don't feel distressed about it. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, people who observe them, having made that switch, aren't going to want to punish them or react emotionally to that. So, right. so it doesn't have the same kind of content, uh, emotional content, that a norm would have. So that's that's the way I think of norms.
0: Right. And and, and what would the example of a norm be?
1: So a norm can be, uh, for example, uh, not uh, eating particular kinds of food. Right. Um, you know, religious norms of that kind um you have norms against uh, miscegenation in various societies uh, that right. cross caste lines uh, racial or ethnic boundaries right um, norms about you know the way in which one speaks or addresses people
0: so they're uh, cultural objects in some sense norms
1: yes i mean norms and conventions are both cultural objects but but um you know uh they differ.
0: Conventions seem to be more like conveniences as opposed to just some ways of uh... well,
1: the way the way economists look at conventions is that you know they are uh, they are a method of solving a coordination problem. Uh, people need to be right coordinated in some way. The driving example you know illustrates that perfectly. Um, whereas uh, you know whereas norms are designed to solve some some deeper problem, where you know there's a collective action issue. Uh, that needs to be addressed, and um, it would not be in the interest of someone necessarily to follow a norm, were there no enforcement mechanism, either either psychological or externally uh, imposed, um, that people would, you know, would start to disregard norms, that they would start to erode in the absence of an enforcement mechanism, whereas conventions are self-enforcing. You know, if everybody's driving on one side of the street, it's really not in my interest to to, to, to go against that convention. Um, so n- norms really require uh, uh, some sort of external enforcement mechanism because in the absence of that, it's really not necessarily in the interests of uh, people to follow a norm.
0: And Rajiv, it's very interesting that we are able to, or you're able to very clearly say that conventions solve coordination problems, but it's not as straightforward to say what
1: kinds of problems norms solve. Well... To some degree, they solve collective action problems. So problems where the self-interest of individuals would lead a society down a road that would cause uh, uh, great, right. you know, inefficiencies or or losses or poor functioning. Right. Um, norms can help enforce standards of behavior that that are pro-social enough to to allow the society to thrive. But of course, norms can also be dysfunctional. They can, you know, they can lead, you know, uh, to to poor performance in societies too. But the capacity to to develop and enforce norms is is part of what, to me, me you know being human means.
0: And how do they come to be? Is it just an organic kind of process? Somebody decides it. Of course, we, one kind of has a sense for how conventions come to be. Um, maybe there's something in the nature of a state or some kind of a supra body which makes calls.
1: Well, uh, do, the do way both you... of
0: them have similar emergent? Um, properties or processes underlying them at least to how they come to be?
1: Well, the way you put the question in your introduction was, mm-hmm. you know, how is it that societies develop norms or how norms emerge in societies? Uh, I would put it slightly differently. I don't think we would have societies of the kind that we're familiar with if it Without wasn't for norms. norms. Yes. <laughs> what, you know, right. what makes human societies distinct actually is, uh, is is the fact that they're so norm-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so... How do they emerge? I mean, I think that they emerge together with society, actually. Actually, oh. society emerges once once a particular set of norms emerges.
0: Right, right, right. And if we travel to you, Anish, and to your world of classical music, which, uh, at least to a layman from the outside, seems like a very tradition-bound, and you know, whether we take a frozen or an evolving view of what tradition is, it's, it's probably accurate to say, and correct me if I'm wrong there, that it's fairly norm-based and rule-based, at least to some parts. Um, So if one were to carry this question into your world, what exactly do norms do? And obviously there's the musical part and the extra musical part. So it'll be good to see where you are on that and we'll probe it further as we go.
2: Yeah, I think I tend to agree with um, Rajiv that uh, there is a uh, a difference between norms and conventions, and I, for me, I think. Uh, what would what would
0: what would be an example of both of these in your context? Uh,
2: f- for in, in the case of a performing tradition like, let's say, Hindustani music, mm-hmm. um, conventions would be musical practice, mm-hmm. you know, performance practice that may carry forward through generations, and then a particular style or a stylistic feature um becomes a norm and then that becomes a discipline in itself a rule in itself within a particular school of uh, music or gharana
1: mm-hmm.
2: um and and then successive generations have to follow necessarily that particular norm
0: right but uh, rajiv made this interesting point about there being this intrinsic motivation almost to co- to comply with a norm and it isn't that's that's stark at least in the case of a convention um what something similar and analogically uh, oh, carry your world
2: i th- i think that that uh, holds true in other uh, rules as you well? feel
0: very bad about breaking and rules that you feel i mean nobody feels all right about breaking rules but i mean when maybe rules is the wrong word
2: um, well, i might be a little different <laughs> from sure. most others because i i like to take uh, risks <laughs> right. uh And I'm not particularly concerned about my public image. Sure. But uh, many musicians would perhaps, uh, um, you know, tread carefully Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, when they, um, you know, with regard to norms. And so, let's say even my students, for instance. Right. uh, I teach them a particular set of rules or norms. And...
0: uh, such as what? Um, and just so that we know that we're on the same page. I mean, you don't need to teach us the same rules right away. Right. So, so, um, um, so what is the norm in, in a musical context?
2: For instance, if you if you look at the repertoire itself mm-hmm. that you're imbibing from your guru, mm-hmm. um, you uh, you are taught, let's say, a compositional form. For instance, in tabla, you have a, a, a composition called kaida. Mm-hmm. And the, the the word itself suggests that it's about rules. Right. And so there is a set of rules, how, what is the seed idea? Uh, As you know, that um, uh, Hindustani tradition is largely um, based on elaboration of a seed idea. Right. So in this case, the seed idea is uh, very clearly stated. And uh, the the vocabulary uh, of the tabla that you use for that seed idea, you cannot change that when you are elaborating. So whatever variations that you may do on the theme have to use the same set of bowls or words from that vocabulary of that seed idea. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that, you are breaking the rule. Mm -hmm. Now, some rebellious people have done that and... uh, uh, Obviously, that has not mean that they are ostracized from the larger fraternity. Uh, but the fact remains that uh, those things are looked down upon. Uh, at the same time, so what 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 do you mean when you say
0: seed idea? You just mean the 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 content of it. The the what is what what does seed idea mean in your context?
2: For instance, let's say um, if I was to re- recite something. Yes. Okay. So is this is
1: this? a very
2: traditional, very old composition, mm-hmm. which we are taught in the first year that you start. Mm-hmm. Everybody is taught, across schools, mm-hmm. Okay. across Gharanas. So
0: this is what you would call the seed, the seed idea, idea of, of okay. kaida.
2: Yes, of the kaida. Now, if you notice, I have used the word tete, bol tete. I have not used tirikete Right. Now, any elaboration that follows should not use thirikete, should right. not use, let's say, thun, should not use dhere, dhere Right. other bulls right. which are not there in that seed idea. So, uh, this is the way you have norms related to repertoire. Similarly, in the melodic framework, you have rags. So, so a particular rag will have a, a specific uh, set of swaras or notes, and and, um, used in in a particular movement uh, in the ascending and descending order. And uh, if you deviate from that, um, then you might be considered as somebody who is breaking the rule or the norm. But at the same time, interestingly, there is a convention of deviating from the norm also.
0: Right. So you mean a
2: convention of improvisation?
0: Uh, or, or, or you mean it in a different sense? Uh,
2: yes, because see, it is all about, in a performing tradition, it's all about a creative impulse. Right. So uh, if you, you're not. You don't sen- want to
0: make clones of yourself and you teach yes, students yes, uh, or whatever. Ideally, ideally. Right.
2: Because if you're a sensitive musician and a sensitive teacher, mm-hmm. then uh, you want the teacher uh, i mean, the student to grow as well and yourself to grow as well so so sometimes you know i might be singing a particular rag or playing a particular rag and then i i have this moment of inspiration and very often that happens when you're on your own not necessarily on the stage so because uh, when when you're actually performing uh, in the presence of an audience there are very many other pressures that act upon you, so so perhaps you you are you don't tend to take so many risks, right? Okay, of course it depends again on wh- who the musician is. Sure, uh, but let's say you're working on your own. Uh, um, in, the, in, in your home, you know, and, and then you have this bright spark at some point, and then you continue working on it, working on it, and then you present it on stage, you test it out over a series of concerts, let's say, and then suddenly everybody thinks, okay, this is an interesting, and it almost becomes a convention in successive generations, and over a period the disciples disciples disciple suddenly decides okay okay this is the rule actually right in our style so this is this is not one of those cases where you're breaking the norm for the sake of breaking
0: the norm it's kind of starts off as a creative impulse or something to the effect so there's something organic about it absolutely um,
2: although there, there are uh, there's enough evidence to suggest that people also do things for novelty yeah sure Okay. Sure, so sure. or to so, please a certain kind of uh, patron or whatever, you know. So
0: going back to the question you posed a little while ago, Anish, when you say that there are norms for how you deviate. So if if one were to think of that in a somewhat rigorous sense, how how does one articulate something like that? And surely it's going to be in a very specific context and so on. But what's the nature of those norms for deviation?
2: So there aren't norms for deviating, but there is a convention... That people have deviated in the past. Right. So there are instances and examples of people having deviated. Yes. And that convention suggests Mm. that if you want this tradition to be alive and kicking, then that convention should continue Mm. of deviating.
0: Mm.
2: How to deviate? Nobody lays down the rules. (laughs) There are no norms for that. Because finally, you are a creative person. At best, your guru can provide you certain keys. Okay, maybe you can look at it a little differently. So that mentoring takes place and the guru may not have done it himself or herself. But uh, he could suggest it, you know. Maybe you should take the risk and do this.
0: And Rajiv, do you think of norms
1: in a very living, organic sense as well? Or how? Well, I mean, we know that they break down sometimes very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So they are certainly living i i don't i don't know whether they're always designed to be living the, the way that they are in music and, you know that's a wonderful example right where it appears as if the norm uh, um constrains the degree you know the degree of innovation right. but has within it the potential for innovation right um and it's it seems to be almost designed that way then you know as you said that it's perfectly permissible to violate from from uh, 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 a particular set of rules.
0: Do you think of these norms as a constraint? Or do fellow musicians think of... Of course, you kind of get trained into it from a very, very young age
2: and you pick up whatever you pick up. I think, yes, sometimes it can be a constraining uh, factor. I mean, the very fact that, let's say, you're trained, uh, let's say, in rag and tal. Right. Okay. The moment you utter those terms you know that this is the kind of framework you're working within. Right. Okay, this is the formal structure. Right. Let's say, for instance, tal. So, it's a cyclical pattern. Right. Okay. Now, if I want a linear pattern, it's not going to be tal. Right. A linear pattern of rhythmic progression will not be a tal. Right. It'll be something else. Right. So... Uh, And it'll have to be called something else. Because tal, for me and for everybody else who is an initiated listener, means a cyclical pattern of rhythmic movement.
0: So are there, can one think of it in some other context, Rajiv, where something somewhat more, maybe not, maybe constraint isn't the right word, but there is fairly rigid boundaries of what one can do and not do, and there are frameworks available so you were beginning to talk about the organic, potentially living nature of norms. Um, no,
1: I just, the, the, the norms that I'm interested in as an economist mm-hmm. um, uh, are not necessarily designed to be living. And, and, you know, so for example, with regard to the use of natural resources. So, right. so you know, um, there's an interesting literature in economics uh, mm-hmm. um much of it due to Lynn Ostrom, who's uh, right. who's a uh, uh, winner of the Nobel Memorial Prize, the only political scientist and to date the only uh, woman, uh, woman, the woman to have to yeah. won the uh, Nobel Memorial Prize in economics. And she was interested in how, how norms regulate behavior in common pool resource settings. So, you know, inshore fisheries, forest areas, grazing lands. And prior to her work... Uh, um, you know, there was the conventional wisdom, at least in economics, was that there was a very severe free rider problem uh, associated with the use of these resources. You'd end up with uh, uh, a tragedy of the commons. The the phrase itself was popularized um, by an influential paper by Garrett Hardin, I think in 67. And what Ostrom did is actually, you know, went out.
0: Almost the opposite of that, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, yes, but the methodology she used to, was to was to conduct a huge number of case studies. So she, you know, she went and looked at actual management of common pool resources, mm-hmm. and found that the manner in which the tragedy of the commons was averted mm-hmm. in those cases in which it was, mm-hmm. was very much dependent on the existence of norms, usage norms, um, that you know that that uh, um, you know you couldn't cut the branches of a tree below a certain level or you couldn't uh, um, uh, catch fish of a certain size, you know, things like that. Um, And that if people violated those norms, they were punished, and they were sometimes punished in a very decentralized way, that, that, that people who were doing the punishing had to incur costs in order to do it, sometimes they were actually violating the law you know in a broader sense uh, uh, that that kind of punishment was not legally actually permissible but it would still happen and you know, uh, you know what so this is just some
0: kind of an informal policing or something like informal that informal
1: policing decentralized right. policing of these kind of actions and f- you know from ostrom's perspective in the absence of that you would end up with the tragedy of the commons that that the resource was managed in a sustainable way precisely because there were norms regarding the manner in which it it uh, could be used and there was decentralized punishment that was costly, and yet people did it. And they did it because they were upset when the when the norm was violated. They incurred material costs in order to do it. There's a really interesting example. This is so
0: beautiful. And the reason this works is because it's decentralized, because there's more comprehensive policing over the common pool. I mean, so how does one think about it theoretically? Um, so th- so it actually in, in, theoretically in the order- it
1: poses a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because you'd think uh, at least, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, if you had individuals who, who engaged in the punishment right. and incurred costs to do it, right. and you had others who, who just sustained, who just benefited from the fact that there existed punishment, that the punishment itself would wither away. Right. And you'd end up then with the collapse of the resource. Right. But that's not what we see. So so that's so what's really the
0: incentive for them to punish.
1: I it's not clear to me that you can explain that punishment in in terms of incentives, I mean, you can explain it trivially by saying that, look, they get pleasure out of the punishment, sure, <laughs> and that's an incentive. But then, sure. you know, that's that's really not uh, that's that's almost tautological. Right? Um, how is it that our capacity to punish? Uh, um, Emerged or evolved is, is, is quite a deep question. I don't think you can answer that question simply by appealing to material incentives.
0: And this, this obviously happens much before somewhat formal legal systems and so on, right? Exactly, right. Exactly. So, beautiful. so,
1: yeah. So, this, this predates, I think, most legal systems. And, uh, but it's absolutely essential uh, for human societies it, uh, on any sort of scale to exist, so, um,
0: and and so, in an instance like this, Rajiv, if if let's say the state were to step in and take care of or whatever, take control of policing the forest yeah. or a fishery area or something like that, the the depletion would be faster
1: as opposed that to that was Ostrom's claim, yes, that it could be. How rigorous
0: that is that? I mean,
1: sh- there are instances of it, but but mm. basically, so imagine that you know there are forest areas mm-hmm. that are taken over by the state, mm-hmm. and and people who were using them. Uh, using these areas for their own local needs are prevented from doing so. Mm-hmm. Um they no longer um you know the the norm that was sustaining uh, the that patterns kind of, of behavior can 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 break down. And and norms are actually quite fragile structures. Um yes. you know once they break down there's not so easy to recover. Right. A bit like uh, you know uh, you know species going extinct, you know right. it's not that easy to bring it back. Right. And well, so, so and so and so Ostrom warned that you know if you were to Uh, Were to either uh, you know have heavy-handed state interference. Be careful where you be careful, be careful, and 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 just make sure that it's actually needed, and make sure that it's not counterproductive. Yes, it's interesting uh, the way norms and conventions
2: manifest themselves Mm -hmm. uh, with regard to tangible resources, Mm. and with regard to. Intangible resources. Right. In the case of a performing tradition, right. it's primarily intangible. And particularly in the case of Hindustani music, it was essentially an oral tradition, right. which is not to say that there was no text-based uh, knowledge, but it was primarily oral uh, but also, there's no also,
0: equivalent of there being a forest or a lake or something in this this case. But right? there is a
2: body of knowledge, mm-hmm. and uh, previously, let's say until the late nineteenth uh, century, right, uh, this was primarily the domain of uh, hereditary musicians right. or courtesans. right. And uh, so, so the element of ownership was uh, an authorship was with them, right. It's right. only since the late 19th century that um, educated middle class uh, in India uh, took to learning uh, music, and much later, actually publicly practicing it, uh, and even later, uh, taking it up as a profession. So I am a first-generation musician. Mm. My parents uh, are not uh, were not musicians, mm. and uh, so. Who is to say what is a convention? Who is to decide what is a norm? And who is to decide how to change the norm is also linked to whose music is it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure at a certain point, hereditary musicians... And there are instances of this. People have written about it or spoken in in informal um, circles. Sure. uh, That uh, hereditary musicians weren't happy that this knowledge had gone out of their hands, so to speak, uh, to others who were now making decisions about the music which they previously uh, supposedly owned.
0: That's interesting.
2: And also... From the uh, late 19th century and particularly in the early 20th century, a lot of this music also became text-based in the sense that uh, music educationists compiled uh, a lot of traditional uh, material and put it out there uh, like textbooks. Now, the new set of teachers who were not necessarily belonging to the hereditary families, uh, they started basing their pedagogy on these textbooks. Okay. So now what was a living entity became a frozen entity in those textbooks. Even the manner in which you elaborated upon the seed idea was clearly defined there. Right. Step one, step two, step three. And because all these textbooks were also linked to evaluating candidates for periodic examinations. You see earlier the examination for a performer was the concert stage. But the when you started uh, including music in curriculum, whether in schools curriculum or having special music schools which were, you know, uh, which they tried to set on par with, let's say, university-style teaching.
0: Well, that's, that's yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So
2: then uh, things changed, you know. So I, and you can notice this change from early recordings that people made on 78 RPMs. The manner in which they engaged with uh, the repertoire is quite different from the way we, we do. Right. The very sound of the music has changed. Technology apart. Sure. Technology, of course, has, um, you know, sure. uh, enhanced that even more.
0: Is it possible to think of the kind of instance that we we're talking about, Rajiv, in the context of intangible resources? It's trickier. You know, uh, the thing is that when... Uh, because it's, it's, it's not like this exhaustible thing that you run out of and it's not a small fish versus a big fish kind of problem. But yeah. um, is there a way to... I mean the Even kind begin of to uh, the kind of
1: cultural resources that that you were discussing to me are quite tangible. Um, you know, one in the way that one preserves the stock of a natural resource mm-hmm. for use over time and by subsequent generations is um, that you allow I, it to reproduce. I, yes, I, and I've never I've never thought about this this way before. But it seems to me as if you know, there's a stock of knowledge. There's There, there are prior innovations. Um, and and in some sense, they need to be preserved if they're going to continue to be used, you know. And 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 if actions are taken that cause them to be depleted or to break down or to become chaotic, that's uh, that's not that dissimilar from the depletion of a natural yeah, resource. Yeah, it's
0: almost linked to this whole idea of how do you take it from one generation to another? How do you take it from one group to another? Mm. How do you, How do you make this... Pool of whatever it might be. Actually, I. Reproduce, I'm, uh, give it some kind of sustainable. Yes.
2: I'm always a little apprehensive mm. of using the word preservation. Mm. Because preservation. That kind of freezes it. Yeah, you know? so one, when, in some ways. Uh, I, I don't freezes think Rajiv it. means it necessarily yeah, in that. But way, I, I, I needed to mention this, sure. particularly yeah. because promoters of music, you know, and uh, um, because once again, since the late 19th century. And this is very intrinsically linked to our national movement for independence. Sure. So, um, the educated middle class was looking for symbols of uh, um, Indian culture, pan-Indian culture. And so, one of the symbols that they saw was Indian music, okay? And so, immediately, they wanted to classicize it They wanted to make it like a monolithic structure. They wanted to say that it had a direct relation to everything that was Sanskritic and Hindu. So anything that happened in the interim was which not only deviated but disturbed what could have been a continuum. So anything that happened during uh, Muslim rulers in courts... Was not something that was to be celebrated. Then, of course, there were uh, other people who said that no, 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 no. But uh, what the Muslim rulers were who did was not too bad because now we at least have that music with us. Sure, uh, no, that's why. So, that's so um, uh, what I was trying to say is that constantly there was this harping on antiquity, on preserving. Something that was ancient and glorious.
0: How are these, how are these norms enforced? So if, if one is in a gharana and you're, tre- you're training under a guru. Yes. And so what are the mechanisms at work? What, what's, the, what's the equivalent of the nature of punishing that we were talking about? In this instance, maybe there are some ways of...
2: Well, obviously, that there's no regular l- regulatory mechanism from the state. So sure, not in the law. And thankfully... Sure. <laughs> Thankfully so. That's fine. <laughs> but uh, within... Is it just ostracizing, just yeah, taking within, you away from... Within hereditary musicians, uh, originally there used to be quality control mechanisms. So, uh, for instance, uh, there was something called Jumma, which means Friday. mm mm-hmm. And this is particularly with Muslim musicians, I'm seeing. Uh, But similar quality control was probably um, existing in Hindu musicians as well, you know, where musicians, hereditary musicians gathered uh, at a certain spot and junior musicians performed first, followed by senior musicians. If there was any uh, divergence from what was considered the norm, you could be challenged there and then. And you had to then have the strength of conviction to say that, no, uh, I may have deviated, but this is what I feel. And you had to prove it. Or uh, if you said that you have done something new, the person there sitting there could say that, no, this is not new. I already have a composition like this. Sure. In fact, I have tens of compositions like that. Sure, sure, sure. And the regulatory mechanism was that go home and practice again. Or take some more talim or training, or become my disciple.
0: But the ultimate punishment is denial, right? The ultimate punishment is to deny access to a certain guru. I mean, what would what would the extreme case of a norm violation be? What would the extreme punishment for a non-violation be, or at least historically, what was it in the 19th century? Well,
2: the guru—I uh, mean, even to this day, if the guru is not—it's it's as simple as that. If the guru is not pleased with what the student is doing, uh, he or it's she off. can say that, okay, bye-bye. You sure, know.
0: sure, sure, sure. Never
2: see you again. And but sure. but I think there is a today there is a sense of entitlement among disciples as well you know because because technology has made um, public access so much more easier yeah. to all kinds of resources you know and so at a click of button you can listen That's to fine. any sure. any kind of music any style of music so then you can you find disciples coming to the guru and saying that oh but so and so guru so and so style says this about so and so rag so and almost Kind of questioning, challenging, almost, and uh, so so the guru sometimes could feel threatened.
0: That's fine. So, Rajiv, does this depend on um, do sustenance of norms depend on sizes of groups? Does it depend on what are? The, is there a way to think about it in those terms?
1: Actually, it was. It was once conjectured that you needed relatively small group sizes to,
0: or norms to for sustain, norms to,
1: yeah, to be to be sustained through decentralized punishment. That right. you had to a small scale. You know, uh, the empirical literature, at least the last time I looked at this, uh, doesn't actually show that to be the case. That there mm-hmm. isn't much of a size effect. Mm-hmm. And you can see that. You know, you one of the examples that you raised in your introduction was tipping. Right. And this takes place in very large societies. Right. Um, so you know, there's a norm of tipping taxi drivers, waiters in restaurants in the United States. You know, fifteen percent or upwards of fifteen percent, um, and it's it's honoured. Uh, people do it, as you said. You know, in so how does the norm
0: of tipping sustain itself? I mean, why why do we even bother to tip a cab driver we would never meet? So but if I visit so, New York only once, and I'm pretty sure not not to turn up there at least see the same cab driver again.
1: So, you know, first of all, it's quite possible that that there could be retaliation there and then. So
0: there's risk of punishment, yeah, instant risk of punishment. Instant,
1: yeah, from, from, <laughs> from, from, from the victim in this case, the so-called victim, the one, you know. Right. Um, there's the possibility, there's a the possibility that, you know, uh, um, your bags may be, you know, thrown into a puddle or, or that, you know, they may be rude to you, they may be, you know, say something that's upsetting. So,
0: how does that knowledge transmit itself through folklore, through anecdotes, through things of that nature? Because how how is one supposed yeah. to fear?
1: Well, it's not. First of all, I, it's not clear to me that it is fear that mostly drives norm compliance in that sure. in that in that situation. People just do it because it's done, without really giving it much of a second thought. <laughs> but the possibility of punishment is definitely there. Right. And you know, if you if you if you walk out of a restaurant without tipping. Or a, a taxi cab, you're going to upset the individual involved, <laughs> the person who is expecting the TIM. I mean, right. because it's factored into their wages. I mean, w- you know, when they accept that employment, um, they're making some it's sort of assessment. Of the, yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Um, you know, what would their earnings be if the norm was followed? Um, and uh, and so they're going to be upset. Now they may not be able to retaliate. They may not be willing to retaliate, um, but. You know, for the most part, I think that you know internal mechanisms are sufficient to sustain this thing. But what's puzzling and what's interesting, actually, from a theoretical point of view,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is why would they incur costs in order to punish you? So just imagine a situation where you don't tip a taxi driver and they throw your luggage on into some water uh, as retaliation. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a rare event, but suppose just imagine, for, you know, the thought experiment. They are taking a great deal. risk. So, you know, you could call the police, you could, you know, retaliate against them, and then certainly not going to get a tip after behaving in that manner. So they have nothing to gain materially by doing it. And yet, they may gain some satisfaction from doing it. And, you know, my claim is, um, and this is not original by any means, there are people, uh, in particular, the the anthropologist Robert Boyd, uh, in collaboration with Pete Richardson, and others have made samples. Others have made this argument that uh, that this willingness to punish is, is 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 something that's quite intrinsic. It's quite universal mm. um, when when norm violations are uh, are observed, and it could be that the norms themselves can vary a lot across time and place, but the fact that people are willing to engage in costly punishment does not, and that we wouldn't have human societies. Of the kind that we do, if we didn't have this capacity, this capacity appears to be quite universal.
0: So this willingness to punish is seems like a fairly central part of sustaining the norms.
1: I think you know, I, if I can, and, and you kind of yes, yeah, if ahead. I can, if I can reference your very interesting uh, episode right. uh, on the invisible invisible right. hand. Right. You had a. a, a, a you had, a, you had a biologist discussing the distinction between human societies and primate societies who made a very interesting conjecture.
0: Right, Amitabh.
1: Amitabh, yeah. which is a very interesting conjecture that maybe the European experiment with liberal democracy was coming to an end and that we were right. going to revert to the the, the the despotic and you know corrupt society that is more typical of other primates, right. you know? And the reason I think uh, I, I think that's a very interesting conjecture, but I, the reason I I, it I, like I it don't think there's with any that. danger of that <laughs> is precisely because, because we have to have, have this capacity, we have this capacity to punish. People who violate norms, and therefore we have the capacity to have in a in a very, a very decentralized very, kind of way to prevent. That's that, that's right, and uh, and and really the evidence that Rob Boyd uh, advances in in support of this distinction between us and the other primates is that we occupy habitats across the across the globe uh, uh, that are so vast and varied as compared mm. to any species. Forget primates. Mm. I don't think there's any species. That, that has spread across the world, the tiniest islands in the Pacific to the highest peaks, to the Arctic, uh, you know, the frozen areas of the Arctic, to tropical rainforests. So are
0: you, what does that have to do with norms, Rajiv?
1: Well, I, it, it, has to do with, it, it has to do with the development of culture which allows for survival mm-hmm. and then the transmission across generations of, of, of culture. And, and so norms it's serve
0: a very, very important role in transmission of culture. Yes, from- and
1: in fact, the music example—it's—it's it's a wonderful example, and it's—it's it's great for me to think it through because it's not one that's salient to me as an economist. Right, but, but you know, music—you can think of as as one element of culture, and without. The, the entire suite of elements that can allow society to sustain itself in very harsh conditions whether mm-hmm. it's in the Arctic or whether it's in the, on, on, you know, the tropical areas um, we wouldn't be able to survive in that, in that manner and, and I think that's really what distinguishes us from the other primates you know, t- that's probably the one thing that I think uh, uh, is critical in allowing human societies to flourish in multiple habitats, there's no primate that can do that
2: There's one thing that I uh, was thinking about uh, uh, when you talked about punishment and I I felt that one reason for people to also, uh, uh, you know, follow norms is to do with uh, retaining your public image or your prestige in in that particular social circle. Identity. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only identity, it's a respect and a, 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 a position or status uh, because there is always that threat that okay if I don't
0: it's a process uh, of acquiring a certain differentiated reputation is, is 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 that is that it
2: or rather retaining it? Once, once having... Let's say I'm an established musician today. The so
0: norms become a lot more important when you have to retain a reputation already somewhat earned. Yes, yes. As opposed to... Yes,
2: very often it does. Ride. Although there are people, um, let's say in Hindustani music, who have uh, taken the jump, you know, and and deviated even after becoming very established. Like, let's just take, for instance, the the, the whole concert repertoire. That's a very um,
0: interesting point, because the point that you're making, Anish, is that norms serve this function of maintaining a certain status as opposed to creating it in the first place. Like, yes. I mean, something to that effect. Yes,
2: yes, absolutely. For for instance, concert repertoire as we know it now, mm-hmm. you know, let's say in, in a vocal recital, you will have forms like uh, khayal, tumri, dadra, etc, sure. etc, cetera, et cetera, in one evening. Right. But there was a time when, let's say, the khayal singers would not sing necessarily thumri. They would think of it as a lower kind of form. For the courtesans and others. And uh, so there were all all these hierarchies. Mm -hmm. For for the classical musician, uh, folk music was considered uh, low art. Mm. Although uh, the the sheer diversity of uh, music in our culture... is in itself so enriching that people have borrowed from each other there have been several overlaps but not necessarily always publicly acknowledged yeah and uh, so the origin of the 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 source of ins- the, the source of inspiration is not always uh, acknowledged and yet at the same time people have deviated so let's say in my gharana i might be constantly told that no you're not supposed to play xyz thing Right. That's the norm in our school. Okay. And your but,
0: point is that it has to do with the self-image. It has to do with yes, the yes, reflected yes. image. Because
2: the, in, in the case of the Gharana system, and particularly in this Guru Shisha format, Master Disciple format, the Guru is very concerned that his... Or her reputation is at stake every time the student takes uh, does a concert, <laughs> right? And it is um, <laughs> also um, dinned into the student that look. You take to the stage only when I tell you right. that that was part of the etiquette. Right. Today, as I said, there is a sense of entitlement. So the student, which takes is,
0: which, which brings me to this interesting point, Anish. That of course we have these musical norms and conventions, and you've given us a few examples of that. But there are these somewhat extra musical norms and conventions as well. I mean, at least yes. from the outside, you look at the mannerisms and the etiquette; they yes. just seem to be for a very different kind. Now, why are they there? How do they come to be, and what do they serve? Any kind of function at all, even if you we were to think of it in instrumental terms on sustaining the musical side of things.
2: Do you know what I mean? Yes, I, I think both are um, not really uh, exclusive. Sure. So, and and the, the, the connecting point is the guru, mm-hmm. because the guru, as Doctor Ranade and Shukranade would say, that guru is not just somebody who passes information to the succeeding generation, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, translates it into knowledge and wisdom. Okay? Sure. So therefore, the guru in an oral tradition and in an essentially oral tradition is very important as an interpreter of the past and uh, looking into the future, what course the student should take. And so, because the guru has such a pivotal role to play, so he or she uh, is then worshipped almost uh, right. uh, like God right and uh, so these and
0: extra musical norms are also of etiquette and
2: respect and
0: whenever that has to do with that right. has
2: to do with that. And sure there 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 are uh, several moments of exploitation. Uh, that takes place uh, that take place uh, because the student is always at a, in a subordinate position uh but once again i am reiterating that you know things have changed sure. particularly post 90s where you know technology has you know yeah. the, the rapid strides uh, so clearly
0: this means that and you know this is happening in this context rajiv but then surely specialized groups must be having specialized norms would that be fair to say do specialized groups have specialized norms? Do specialized groups have very distinct norms?
1: Yes, I mean, I I, I think that's right. But I think there's also uh, overarching norms, right, mm-hmm. that are, that then will apply to multiple groups simultaneously. So, the respect for a guru, I think, is not something that's just specific to only to music. a musical, yeah, a community right it's it's you know there's various forms it's of a it in cultural other, norm and right, and right. so those are guess. inherited then by 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 different communities and then sub communities will have their own very specific norms Right, but the way
2: they manifest themselves, perhaps, is the, so. Yeah. In, in the case of, let's say, um, uh, Hindustani music, people will touch each other's feet or whatever. Right. You know, but it's not necessary right. that uh, somebody will touch a professor of economics' feet. Right, <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> thankfully, that's not a norm. Uh, <laughs> so the, that's the, right. Nevertheless, so the, I mean, the way in, the, in which people, the
1: way irrespective pe- of the culture you're in, the way in which people are dressed, for example, you know, uh, yeah, there, are, there are people. People who you know, uh, some people who prefer to be referred addressed in a first name basis yes. by current students, but then sometimes people you know, twenty, thirty years after graduation, will still use honorifics. You know, right? So that's that's you know, that's a form of touching right. the theme. You know, it's
0: right, right, right. What's the future? I mean, as as as, I mean, is there some kind of a gradual transition from norms to laws? Is 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 that a thought worth having? Is that a thought
1: worth exploring? It's an interesting question. I, um, I don't know if I have an answer to that. There, there are people who argue that, um, you know, codifying behavior in laws can can uh, diminish or even obliterate norms. Uh, you know, there's a famous experimental study of a child care center in Israel, for example, right. where, uh, you know, there's a norm that you pick up your children on time so right. that you don't impose costs on the, on, on the child care workers and people would would honor that i mean of course sometimes for because of circumstances some people would be But a few the minutes. moment
0: you start charging them for that That's then, that's yeah. right so
1: then so then they <laughs> instituted you know an experiment basically where sure. they replaced it with a fine Right where they basically you know you know basically gave it the character of a law where where you know if you do not pick up your child by a particular amount of time there's a certain amount of so uh,
0: Sometimes moral punishment seems to be superior to monetary punishment Well at least in otherwise. terms
1: of Compliance, because what happened, what was found in this particular experiment, um, uh, was that people uh, um, picked up their children later than they did when there was no fine. Right. So you'd think, you know, adding a fine would make it costlier, um, but it eroded, you know, or at least it, you know, changed the framing of the problem away from one where uh, uh, it was wrong to do something uh, into a frame where it was costly, and people were willing to pay the cost, but they weren't willing to do what was wrong.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. But is there a way to generalize it further? I mean, is there, as one thinks of this somewhat historically over the last 300 years, 500 years, and tries to roll, what can try and roll the clock backward, and one can pick any domain in any instance. Um, So laws aren't always a bad idea, right?
1: Oh, no, no, not at all. Uh, Right. No, because... uh... Is there
0: a way of saying when they work all right and when they don't work all right? And I understand this is a simplistic way of posing it, and it's not just norms versus law, but is, is there a way of even dealing with something somewhat tentative?
1: Um, I'm not sure I have anything particularly intelligent to say about when right. uh, the imposition of law, you know, when a formalization of a pattern of behavior in law is a good idea. There's There's really interesting work actually about why people comply with laws? Actually, mm-hmm. there's there's a there's a very strong norm based component mm-hmm. on compliance with laws. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is you know um, actually there's pioneering work by Tom Tyler on this. Um, the, the 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 old view, at least in economics, of why people comply with laws is because they'll be punished if they don't. Right. Um, but you know a, a lot of it happens to. Be related to their trust in the law enforcement community, their 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 belief in the you know the, you know the justice of the system of laws and the manner in which they they are enforced and so on are absolutely critical uh, in determining. So so laws and norms actually interact with each other in ways they're not quite so separable.
0: Right, interesting. And why 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 do students why did students comply with the norms that gurus imposed on them for so many years? Seems to be breaking down a little bit, but you know we'll. We can maybe think of this in both.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, earlier on, it was because uh, uh, the sheer—you um, know—the the, the reasons that you the, you wanted a good teacher for yourself, and that was not always possible to to have, uh, because many of the gurus were migrating to different cities depending on what patronage they were receiving from those areas. So it wasn't always uh, easy to convince a guru, to accept you as a disciple. Right. Today, the situation is And then is you, different. so
0: you kind of offered your compliance
2: in return for... Yeah, in many ways. Right. Even, I mean, in the old days, it was even you, you did menial chores. Right. So household <laughs> duties, etc, etc. Thankfully, that has changed. and, <laughs> and uh, But, you know, uh, coming back to your question to to Rajiv about uh, right. the, the future, our uh, I wouldn't be comfortable with, uh, you know, laws uh, in relation to uh, the creative aspect, you know, or or, uh, the practice of music, let's say. Because then it's killing uh, or stifling creative freedom. I mean, that's what censorship is about Uh, in the Indian context We continuously uh, hear about that whether it's to do with films whether it's to do with novels or whatever else you know so um, I, I would be a little circumspect about uh, laws for uh, dealing with the actual practice of music or, or the creative aspect but uh, let's say uh, you have laws related to copyright okay now here's something about uh, Uh, you know, moral, ethical, as well as uh, um, property rights related to whatever intellectual uh, component is there uh, in that activity. And traditionally, we always, for instance, vocal compositions in the Hindustani framework, they always carried the pseudonym of the uh, composer. So you knew this composition was by this one. You didn't need a copyright uh, office for that. It had its signature. It had its signature. And uh, so also saint poets also, always, Surdas, etc. And then other people who came along the way, they felt, okay, this is a good voice to write in. So they put the same um, signature for their own works as well. Because they felt that it's, it's not something that I'm offering. I'm inspired by the... Older, um, uh, you know, the the saint poet from the past. So, so many Surdas compositions or Kabir compositions are not necessarily written by Kabir or. That's fascinating. Surdhas. That's
1: the, that's a reverse of yes. plagiarism. Actually, yes. it's the opposite of plagiarism.
0: Exactly. It's the opposite so, of so, so you're when you ascribe to somebody what they've not done because it's it's similar stylistically, not even in content. Yeah. Right. So you you this is a formal. Yes. Kind of reverse. Uh, yeah. It's yes. So you take Are that, there any instances of that in your world? Doesn't look like.
1: You mean in academic publications? Or
0: elsewhere. I mean, it, so, it looks like it's happening in the case of literature, poetry, and the musical traditions a little yes. bit. Yes. Not so much So, n- this is nowadays. a wider interpretation of exactly what you received from the… Yes. It's, it's not just… I
1: mean, the, you get a flavor of it uh-huh. when people put forward their contributions as being excessively modest. So, mm-hmm. so sometimes, you know, you know, of course, they will publish right. in their own name but, but sometimes law quite after somebody else and well, things of that Well well sometimes sometimes quite innovative and quite new contributions may be presented as if they are you know minor variations on a the theme that somebody else has started so you know giving a great deal of credit to 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 others and you get the opposite extreme where you get minor variations <laughs> that are marketed as, as you know as path
0: breaking as, as
1: path breaking that, that, that's right so you get the entire spectrum yes, of yeah. course but it's interesting that sometimes sometimes very um sometimes very substantial, maybe less so now than before, but sometimes very substantial progress comes uh, in the guise of a very small variation on a the theme uh, yes. uh, developed I think, by somebody uh, else. Yeah,
2: the the same holds true in, in music as well. But, but in the context <laughs> of law, I think that having a law like the Copyright Act, let's say, is very important in this day and age. Because, of course, I'm all for creative commons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but... Uh, um, I, as the creator of my music, should. But norms can norms
0: can transmit and preserve culture, but they, they don't transmit and preserve profits and capital that well, right? That's probably why. Yes, and it's you're not al- what you're saying, and most musicians would say what y- you're saying.
2: Yeah, but it's not also only about money.
1: It's 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 about uh, you know something ethical. But that's part of the you know Creative Commons tradition is that acknowledgement of somebody's intellectual contributions is absolutely key. So when exactly. something is distributed even under a Creative Commons license, yes. and I've been doing this, as you know, with regard to uh, uh, this new set of open access resources mm. for economists, the, sure. the curriculum Open Access sure. Resources for Economics, the core project. Um, we release our material under a Creative Commons license, but uh, and people can translate it, people can do all kinds of things, but, but they have to give a re- the attribution exactly. to the creators of the content. Unless
2: you say that I want it anonymous yeah I mean that's, some people yeah. do that as well yeah, yeah but uh but here in 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 the Indian situation and particularly let's say in, in Hindustani music um, let's say performing uh, performers' rights where you are recorded from your live performance and then somebody um, puts it out there for dissemination and very often commercial dissemination yeah. and you're a loser in every which way. So right. there you need protection and your regular norms within your fraternity are not going to help. In fact nobody in the fraternity will really support you because you you seem to be disturbing the equilibrium so to so speak. Why?
0: So why so some kind of decentralized policing or shaming or something to that mm. effect doesn't work in this context is that because of just information not being as widely available as that so it goes back to the question of size of domains and size of groups. Yeah. Right? I think it's probably simpler to police a forest. I
1: don't know. and something they're, which is a
0: lot more distributed and heterogeneous and disaggregated. Right? I mean, I mean, the question that you asked about the future of norms, mm. um, I think. Why isn't somebody stopping somebody else from performing uh, or pointing out that you know this is Anisha's thing? Why are you playing it? That doesn't happen as as well as. I mean.
1: You know, you do get the emergence of norms in um, online forums. Uh, For example, uh, you know, uh, uh, chat rooms or, you know, uh, Reddit, Twitter and so on. Um, It's not working all that well at the moment. But, you know, one can imagine the development of, uh, you know, a culture of reaction. Maybe those norms would
0: have a different character or a
1: different form. I don't know but but you know the here we see norms emerging in real time uh, or or falling apart uh. And uh, that's the place I would look. I, I don't know what the answer is, but that's Although the place those, I would look.
2: those platforms, uh, On those platforms, ev- every person who has a, a Twitter handle yeah. thinks that he or she is an opinion maker and an author. And so there's well, that.
0: I, I think which is why this is somewhat early days of yes. this, right? I yeah. think that's kind of what Rajiv means. That the norms haven't fully taken shape yet. Right. You know, it's
2: possible that those people who are tweeting... Also, believe really that uh, this is something that is original that I have actually done, or uh, at least portrayed like that, which may not be the case because a traditional musician may not have a Twitter handle. Yeah. Uh, so,
0: what's your guess, Raji? What What could the nature of some of these? I, you know, to, I think be, to I emerge. Th- norms yeah, I think
1: I think it's uh, so. I you know I've been writing occasionally a blog you know for the last fifteen years or so and. I've been thinking about the policing of uh, comments. Right. So comments can be very abusive uh, or they can be very constructive. They can be very courteous. Right. Uh, um, you know, they can be superficial. And, you know, people have different approaches to this. You can either, you know, have a closed community of commenters. You know, you only allow certain people to comment. Or you can try to uh, 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 look at each comment before it posts and either, you know, decide whether to moderate. Allow it, moderate you can moderate the, the posts and so on and uh um so basically you're trying to design the sort of institutional structure of online communication, and uh it's interesting to see you know whether or not a completely open forum where anybody can post whatever they want to post necessarily devolves into one where the lowest common denominator prevails, and you know the the thing descends into chaos or abuse which or which whether or not which which has been claimed you know in many cases. Or whether or not there's a, you know there's an endogenous process by which it becomes uh, which
0: kind of is the heart of the question in many ways, right Rajiv? when do norms emerge because yeah. surely norms don't emerge everywhere in every context for all kinds of processes and yeah. is there a way of saying ex ante that norms shall not emerge in this case for x, y z reasons which which might yeah, be I don't yeah more. I don't think
1: we have a good theoretical understanding of the conditions under which
0: norms emerge and they don't
1: yeah i don't I don't think so. Are there guesses? Are there tentative proposals? Are there... Um, I mean, there's a there's a huge body of work on, on the common pool resource case, you know, going back to Ostrom's work. Right. About the kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, about the kind of conditions that need to be satisfied.
0: And what are what's the nature of those conditions?
1: Well... Do they work for well, all one kinds of, the, of common pools?
0: Would it work actually, for a coal
1: mine? Would it work for... Actually, one of the critical distinctions, and this was uh, really a breakthrough, I think, was to distinguish between property, you know, between common property and open access. Mm -hmm. Um, Open access would be like uh, ocean fisheries uh, or or, or the global atmosphere, you know, where if we, you know, if we pollute. Yes, exactly. Whereas uh, common property, you know, there's a well-defined set of users who have the capacity, if not the legal right, to exclude others from coming in. And uh, so what this common is
0: property be Rajiv?
1: What so there's a so there's a very interesting example. I'll give yes. you an example by James right. Atchison. is a is a fascinating book called The Lobster Gangs of Maine. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, you have a resource which is lobsters in right. in you know in the ocean, which are effectively open access. I mean, people do have the right to go and catch lobsters. Uh, um, I could go there and do it. I, you know, I might need some sort of permit, but you know, there's nothing that really prevents me from doing it, aside from the fact that I don't have the skills to do it. But I, you know, in, 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 sure. it's not it's not something I'm excluded from, but I'm de facto excluded from it. Uh, you know, uh, this is what James Adjison Edg- describes. If I were to go and try to do that, somebody will uh, open up my traps. And and make sure that they're not functional. And if I keep persisting on doing that, they might damage them, or they might damage my vehicle, or they'll you know they'll they'll, <laughs> they'll engage in these decentralized sanctions. They'll be escalating they'll, informal. They'll politic. be escalating informal punishment until I until it's just not worth my while. And you know the argument is that this this helps the lobster fisheries survive. That if it were truly open access, you know there would be overfishing. There would be yeah yeah overharvesting. And, um, you know, so so what's happening here is that an open access, you know, under a legally open access resource is de facto common property of those people who feel that they have the right to exclude others from it.
0: You know, when when one speaks of some of these instances like the online platforms and things of this nature, the very fact that it doesn't seem like a finite resource, is that the reason why such kind of policing and I think, kind of I think that's probably
1: i think that's probably a big part of the problem is that is that you know some of the chat rooms or the comment boards are are, are genuinely open access
0: right
1: and in in that case you don't have a well defined community of users and you can't get the kind of norms that ostrom uh, identified
0: so there's no homogeneity to the nature of users and that's why
1: well i don't think, I don't think homogeneity is necessarily the but they key need to share issue some
0: characteristics
1: yeah, they need they need to you know have the space to develop the capacity to punish each other, right, in ways that sustain uh, um, efficient use in 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 some sense.
0: Right, and we'll end with you, Anish. What's the future future of norms and in, in 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 classical music? Um, are are things like gharanas and some some of the rules that you mentioned how rule bound you expect? your music to be um, 500 years out, 1,000 years out, 250 years out, one can just pick any time frame one likes.
2: Well, I think that so long as the convention to deviate, to innovate, to experiment continues, uh, which is what uh, the tradition actually teaches us and which is why the tradition is living, uh, we will always have new sets of norms and uh, those norms will keep changing from generation to generation and uh, i wouldn't uh, feel threatened by it uh, or feel threatened that uh, the the tradition will uh, die out as a result of that it will because uh, uh, change is inevitable and sure what was 100 years ago is not what Sure. Uh, the the music that we are making today and 100 years from now, who knows, you know so um, I think so long as we respect the fact that uh, you know, the convention to uh, innovate is there, ever present we will constantly have new sets of norms
0: and that was a part of the tradition yes, absolutely at least the music in the safe hands
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'd like to think so
0: (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much to both of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
1: you.